0: Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and my guest this week is Kiran. Welcome, Kiran. Hi. My first trivial question is, Kiran is a man's name in India. How did you end up with the name Kiran?
1: <laughs> oh, Kiran is also a woman's name in uh, Sanskrit, so there's a lot of Kiran, Kirana, okay. and um, it's the first ray of light that hits in the dawn. So just when it's all dark, that first ray of light is a Kirana in sans- Sanskrit. Oh, nice. So yeah, so it's actually a really, really common in, if you know, in Fiji or any of the Indian countries. The way I spell it, K-I-R-A-N, is a female version, oh, versus okay. male Kiran, which is an Irish saint, or the Japanese dragon. Huh. <laughs> so there's lots of versions of it. But mine, it's a great story how my name came about. Because when I first um, popped, blew my mind. My mind blew a fuse. And you read the book and we'll talk about more of it. But it was so radical. It was such a spontaneous, I had no background, no no orientation. And I was suddenly without any form. And navigating the world after a few months was so hard for my family, my friends, everybody. Because I was an entirely different human being in front of them. Um, like, radically different, sudden, like, now. So a friend, a really, really good friend of mine, Christopher, who the book's um, dedicated to, he said, you know, sometimes people change their names. That's what a name change is. It helps everybody clear out the identity and start again. Why don't you change your name? And I was like, oh, you know, that's so flaky, that's so new agey, (laughs) I'm not gonna change my name. And then I thought about, it and I thought, we you know it, whatever helps, if anything helps. So I had my first boyfriend. His name was the Irish Kieran, and I loved the name. I always loved the name. I thought I'm going to name my kids Kieran or my dogs Kieran. And so, walking in the woods one day, I thought, well, maybe Kieran is my name because I love it so much. So I went to my sister and I said to my little sister, um, "What do you think about the name Kieran for me?" And she said, I love it. I love it. And I said, okay, how about you just call me Kieran? And let's just see how it goes. (laughs) Because I was really nervous about doing this sort of flaky, new agey thing. And um, my sister told my mom. And my mom called me and was like, I love it. I love that name. I've always hated your name. I love that name. I'm going to call you that name. My friend Christopher, my mom, and my sister for six months called me Kieran. And they were the only people. And they all loved it, and it fit. And it was a few days later, I asked my sister, I said to my little sister, how do we spell it? How how should I spell it? My sister said phonetically. K-R-R-A-N. spell it just the way it sounds, Kieran. And I was like, okay. And then literally maybe two and a half years later, when I start to learn about spirituality, and that people, you know, a guru will give you a name, you know, to refer to this other thing. Um, and usually it's this sort of Sanskrit kind of a name. I type in K I R A N to see what to see what that is, and I find out it's this Sanskrit word that means the first ray of light that hits the dark. Cool. <laughs> so, so, I call my sister. I said, "You're you are my guru. You named me." <laughs>
0: That's good.
1: God named me. <laughs> So that's where Kieran came from, yeah. And uh, but I think most people know me as Mister Girl in the City. I think that not a lot of people know that it's Kieran. <laughs> they just think of Mister Girl in the City.
0: Well, um, now now a lot more people are going to know it about it as Kieran because we just yeah. we just talked about it. You just alluded to, and in your little bio you sent me, you, you you referred to what you called a massive spontaneous awakening. You died of a massive spontaneous awakening into your true nature. I found this most interesting, I I read your book, Tools for Sanity, it's not a long book, I read it on a plane flight from Dallas to San Francisco. What made it extraordinary was that most people who have, there are exceptions, but most people who have spiritual awakenings have done a certain amount of spiritual practice, uh, sometimes years of it. And they they kind of long and yearn for this thing, you know, and you're just, you know, clueless about this stuff, you hadn't really focused on it at all in your life, you were a dancer and, and this and that. And all of a sudden, one day out of the blue, kablam, you had this incredible shift. So, um, and then you, had, you spent years trying to adjust to it and, and you know, restructure your whole vehicle to accommodate it. So I'd like to explore that with you in quite some detail. So um, tell us the story, as, as you told it in the book, about you know, your life prior to that. Not at great length, but you know, as much as you feel is relevant. And then what happened when you had this awakening?
1: As you mentioned, I was a professional artist, so uh, I had a, you know, fine arts degree in um, theater and dance, and I was an actor and dancer, and um, that was the practice of my whole life. I'd actually been, you know, dancing and acting since I was, you know, two, and professionally and semi-professionally through my teenagehood. Um, and I worked, you know, all over the U.S. and all over Europe and um, and had a, a really deep identity as an artist, a lifetime career, you know. So I guess in some ways that was my spiritual practice because, um, you know, a deep practice of artistry and creativity, maybe. <laughs> but, um, yeah, and I also... Um, you know, which is really relevant to the, to my story and to myself as a teacher, I had a really challenging life with a tremendous amount of violence and tremendous amount of trauma, like off the charts,
0: levels of trauma and violence. You mean like domestic violence kind of thing? Your, your father yeah, or yeah, something? Yeah,
1: my host. mind-blowing amount of childhood abuse and uh, just, it just cycles and cycles of unbelievable trauma at, at every level. So although I was so fortunate to have this successful artistic career, I actually lived it on the fringes of my life. Uh, and although I was very successful as an artist, the primary movement of my life was trying to survive and function uh, profound psychological, physical, you know, emotional damage that included, like, very, very extreme post-traumatic stress disorder from, from all of the events and all of the trauma. And then also, you know, having survived that, I was recreating it in many ways in my life, in many areas of my life. There was levels of insanity and violence that were just on a perpetual cycle. It's interesting because in most models
0: of spiritual development, that would disqualify you from any kind of imminent awakening you know one would assume that a great deal of um, repair work had to take place and you know purging of all these deep impressions before you could even get close to
1: some kind of awakening I'm so grateful that you're see that you point that out cuz um yeah because that is a really really strong line in so many you know Advaita Buddhism you know when you go into these um Indoctrinations—that that is a really strong through-line that's yeah, in have got all earth.
0: these vasanas, all these kleshas, you know, all these impressions in the nervous system, and they're deeply rooted, and they're going to keep you bound and restricted until they've uh, been gradually, gradually worked out, that whole thing. Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. And, you know, it's not true.
0: <laughs> in your case, anyway.
1: In my case, and in, in many, many others, you know, many, many others, um, you know, that that, that the actual death of the self is irrelevant of the forms, one of the forms being your psyche, one of the forms being your mind, one of the forms being your body, you know, that it all God anyway, (laughs) you know, it don't have to take a shape (laughs) to know itself.
0: There's a a famous saying though from some Zen guy who says, you know, enlightenment may be an accident, but spiritual practice makes you accident prone. And I've often quoted that, and some people have taken exception with it and say, well, I'm not sure that there's any evidence for that. And kind of anecdotally, it seems like there is, because people who are engaged in spiritual practice seem to be more likely to have awakenings. But you are certainly an exception, and I wonder if some kind of you know, really objective study were done. We might find that maybe all that spiritual practice accomplishes is easing the transition when, when the uh, awakening does happen, so you don't have so much to work out afterwards.
1: You know, it's, it's so interesting, and it's a really great point. And I think my opinion is more at the front end of that. People who are called to a spiritual practice already have a sense. It's all, reality is already touching them, which is why they're called to go there. So, so having a calling to move to spirituality is the same calling that's going to make you predisposed to awakening Possibly. I think a very soft, separate will, which is often, you know, 98% of people in the spiritual house have found the forms, like the world, so painful. And there's some kind of idea or sense or in very direct experience of something else, of a kind of a mystery that moves. And so the per- the, this calling inside of people makes you accident-prone, I would say, although the practices are beautiful and there are bazillions of them and the ones that call to you that you undertake always have some level of devotion or love that is guiding you towards that movement inside of you to begin with that made you show up, so that, I think that's true, I think that that makes you accident-prone, yeah.
0: But you can go decades, and most people do go decades between first sensing that gentle, you know, voice inside, that calling that there's something more, and having the sort of realization that you had, uh, just more or less out of the blue.
1: Yeah, and I think that, God, I, I think a lot of things about that. And one of the things is that was my own personal experience that when I eventually stumbled into the halls of spirituality, finding out that that's where this is all being talked about I was shocked repulsed and repelled because of the distortions that I was hearing was so thick I used to say to people all the time when I first discovered spirituality which is you know two years into being awake it was the only place that God didn't live there was only one place in the world where there was no God and that was the spiritual house (laughs) and I used to because I needed I needed to be around sanity. I needed to be around clarity. The teachers, all these different teachers, were that voice of sanity and clarity. But in order for me to hear them, I would often have to sit outside the building. Like, I couldn't even be in because as soon as I walked in the doors, it was like God being sucked right out of the whole essence of the whole place. How come? Like, I
0: mean, I, we could name teachers, but we probably don't want to in this context. But, I mean, everybody knows who all these well-known teachers are, especially that you, you might be likely to see in the Bay Area. And, and you tell a story of going to see Adyashanti and getting up on the mic and more or less, you know, yelling at him uh, for luring these people into this realization which they actually had no inkling of the um, radicalness of it. You know, like, what are you t- trying to do? These people If these people had any idea what you were trying to get them into, they'd run out the door, basically. As they said.
1: actually knew for real. You know, the the, the actual teachers, like, like I, I think Odge is the most incredible teacher. I mean, he's, I call him, my, him and my friend Eckhart, those are the big guns. I call I, them my like, big the guns. Tolle. Yeah, they're they as clear as clear gets, and they're fantastic teachers. I'm so thrilled about their work. The distortions that I was discovering were like the deep cultural storylines that was filtering the information the teacher was saying. Now, I was only interfacing with these very contemporary, very modern, quite clear teachers, but it was inside of the home of Buddhism. And, you know, quite honestly, I have I have found a lot of Buddhists that I love to death and I think are incredible teachers, but I have never found a Buddhist teaching I agreed with yet. I'm totally open, I'm totally open, but, you know, if you tell me about meta-practice, if you tell me about mindfulness, I get into a, a, a rashy itch of irritation because it is so full of distortion.
0: Let me see if I understand you correctly. So you're saying that you're not faulting Adyashanti or Ekratoli or Gangaji or any of these other well-known teachers. What you're saying is that by the time what comes out of their mouth goes into the ears and through the brain of the the audience, it becomes something very different from what they're actually saying. So you're you're saying things get muddled in the transmission, is that what you're saying?
1: They get muddled in the deep cultural ground of these hollowed halls, that are already saturated with a culture and a storyline that's a distortion Acceptance practice, for instance, acceptance practice, acceptance practice, there's this inside of it, it's just kind of this, in in the halls of spirituality, it's known, you know, and it has Advaita versions and Buddhist versions and all the different versions of it, New Age versions, and, you know, it's like saturated in the halls, and always it's pointed to external circumstance just say yes, you know, a deep bow of whatever shows up. I mean, and there's the first distortion is externally is the, is the mirror. That's the illusion. There's no power there. The power is internally. So the acceptance practice is about internal acceptance, because that's the only thing there is. That's it. There's no external anyway. You end up walking around with a bunch of you know, a bunch of ideas that my job is to just say yes. My neighbor comes up to me and says, can I borrow the tractor? And I'm, I'm a good spiritual person and I'm in to acceptance. So I say yes. And then he says, can I have, you know, the lawnmower? And I say yes. And I just say yes. And this is just, there's no freedom in that versus the internal. My neighbor comes up and asks for a lawnmower. And I, Feel what arises inside of me and what arises inside of me is total irritation because this fucker breaks everything he ever borrowed and I never want to lend him anything and my new lawnmower cost me $1,500 that's what arises and you know what that's compliments of the mystery like that's not that's not people think They have to get through all that and move into some profound position of surrender. The position of the surrender is to honor that internal movement and surrender to that and then find, ideally, a very gracious way to express a real boundary that's coming up, which is, I understand it would be great, but I actually am not lending out my tractor. I noticed the last thing I lent you was broken and I haven't got a replacement yet. But I'd be happy to accept that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's a good example. So, you know, what you're saying is that without really uh, discovering um, and fine-tuning their inner compass, people externalize these teachings, that being a case in point, and in this case become kind of sheepishly, cooperative with whatever presents itself, but it's that's not what was intended by the original teaching whoever espoused it
1: We're in a really interesting spot in the world and in the planet right now Ken Wilbur has a thing about people are more awake now than they used to be So the Buddha has the same freedom that I have but it's more awake here because I live it by paying a mortgage and having relationships and having community, like, I'm actually living this awakening in so many layers of matrix, I'm not sitting outside of society in the role of teacher that excludes me from equal-powered relationships, and underpowered, and over, you know, like, I, I'm not sort of taking the, the the crown that says, I am the Buddha, nobody questioned me, and, you know, a lot of yes men, and I walk around just speaking this. I'm not assuming that that was Buddha's life, but that's the way his teachings 500 years later get written down as. And all these distortions get filtered in and filtered in and, and all of the interpretations of, you know, Jesus' teachings and on and on and on. They're so distorted. And that's the saturation of the culture of the hallowed hall. So you walk in and there's already this thick layer of distortion of everything, uh, which is so innocent. I mean, it's, it's really, really innocent to walk into this space. You know, and a, and a lot of our teachers come from lineage, so they're using the same verbiage, the same vocabulary, which may or may not be relevant. And it may or may not be appropriate in a moment. And they just keep using the same verbiage because words are difficult. They're too big. They don't fit really, what we're actually talking about. So they keep using these same words and these same words, and I think that in there is the natural distortions that happen, and that I interfaced with. When I walked in those halls and I was like, what the heck is going, what is, what is this?
0: <laughs> There's a saying, knowledge crumbles on the hard rocks of ignorance. Um, so you would walk in those halls, and was there just this sort of like... Um, you know, almost esoteric uh, antenna pickup of, of the kind of the, the operant mindset in the hall that would freak you out so much? Because maybe, usually it's just the teacher speaking and everybody's just sitting there passively listening, but did it somehow just r- go against the grain for you the moment you walked in there because you somehow picked up on the, where the, the audience was at versus what the teacher was saying?
1: Well, well, yeah, and more specifically, because you've read the book, I go into this a little bit. What happened for me is that when my mind blew a fuse, I no longer had access to my mind. And without the mind, uh, the mind is a tool. So I know very directly what mind is, because mind blew a fuse. <laughs> when it's gone, you sure the heck know what's missing, you know. So my mind, when it blew...
0: Let's let's back. Hang on a second. No, we, we kind of skipped ahead. Let's really get I was into. Gonna
1: say, yeah, let's really to get into that down. right now.
0: Tell tell your story about when your mind blew and and all that, and, and then we'll kind of pick this up again in terms of yeah. Okay,
1: sure. That's great. So uh, so we had been talking before. I had this beautiful artistic career, um, quite successful and very full. But m- the primary movement of my life was trying to heal and survive from from my trauma. And most disturbingly, the post-traumatic stress disorder, which made my world entirely small, very, very hard to function, because of that that particular trauma. Um, what you know, you see in movies with like, you know, like people coming back from war and stuff. What what post-traumatic stress disorder looks like? It's highly dysfunctional. You can't really function. So that was the the majority of my life. So the so the point and the reason why I think that's so important, both from in my story and my story as a teacher, is that. That journey of healing for me was that I always needed to find truth in a situation. So for me, it wasn't a kind of a spiritual thing. It was like two people are talking and I am not safe because I'm never safe. I'm always on alert and I'm always about to be harmed brutally somewhere, whether like most of the time that wasn't true, but in my head it was. And so I have to find out what's true here, what's true here, what's true here, what's true here. So, so many years of digging for what's true, I think that's what predisposes someone to awakening. And I think that's what brings people into the spiritual house, is that they have this sense that there's something else here, that all of this going on isn't necessarily true. And it's painful on so many levels. So I think in that case... I am the same, but mine looked at mine came across from needing to do it through, through um, healing, through healing my my psyche. So this is the part that's unique: is I had actually gotten to a point in my life, just after my 32nd birthday, um, of very functional, unbelievable levels of functionality given my history. So tremendous peace, tremendous ability to start to just live life not so on the fringes, like, I, I was actually healing, um, and just, you know, skipping along, living my life, I was in Vancouver, Canada at the time, I was an actor, working, at, my career had led me to mostly film and TV at that point, I was having this great life, you know, how, you know, I lived in that girl, and, you know, like, that girl's house, like, a little great apartment in the city, and, uh, my great friends, and blossoming, exciting career, and one day, After going for lunch with my mom and her twin sister, I just came home to change shoes to go out and meet a friend. And as I was putting my shoes on and tying my shoes up, I noticed that my body, like my hands, were just made of light. And it was really, it was sort of inconsequential in the same way that you would be grabbing your keys and wallet out the door. You don't really look at your keys and wallet. It was in the same way. I wasn't really looking at my hands. I just was like sort of in the background was like, wow, they're just golden light, you know. And then this sort of off thought of like, wow, you know, my whole, our whole bodies are just so beautiful. (laughs) Bodies are so beautiful. They're just golden light. And then I think I caught that thought and actually stopped. And when I looked and I kind of looked at the wall, there was no wall. There was no room, there was no me, nothing was here. I blew a few. So the filter that takes energy and creates it into a wall was gone. It left. And it did never come back. Like, it was just 100% done. So all there was was seeing the quantum field. And that was all I could see was this sort of wave. Of energy and even uh, as I say that I mean it's so because we so consistently have minds that filter information it's not like I could see the wave I could just when I lost the mind I suddenly had access to about a thousand percent more than seeing it was like vast and vast fields and fields and fields of information were suddenly accessible to me that before were unaccessible because my mind was filtering it and just creating wall.
0: What kind of information?
1: Well, everything, everything, you know, choice. Like radio uh,
0: stations? I mean, what kind of, what were you picking up on? I mean,
1: pretty much, much, kind of much more deeper than that. Much more like, well, as it exists for me now. You know, this morning, Rick, I knew what time you woke up <laughs> and started to research today. You know, even though I'm asleep for 3 hours in a different time zone, there's a part of me that's always awake. What time did I wake up? For me, it was about I think it was about 6 or 6:30 6 your time. For me, it was a little earlier.
0: First I woke up around 4.15 because the cat woke me up, and and then I lay in bed for a while and I decided I'm not getting back to sleep. So I went in the other room and started meditating, and I meditated for a little bit, and then I lay down and slept some more, and then I woke up again at, I don't know, it might have been a little after 7 or something.
1: It would have been that first time when you woke up and meditated in that space. Well, that
0: would have been like... um, 2.30 Two thirty in the morning, your time or something. Yeah,
1: it was quite. It was in the middle of the night, my time. Yeah. That I was like, I didn't look at the clock, but I was like, oh, Rex awake. Huh. <laughs> you know?
0: And so oh, it, was just, it was just one of one of many little
1: many, tidbits. Many, of were coming many, many streams all over the planet, all over the world, all the movements going all the time. Absolutely.
0: Do they seem uh, irrelevant, or is there a reason that you're picking up all these things? Are you actually? Are they actually enhancing your experience or enabling you to function better or are you actually helping facilitate these different things that you're picking up on?
1: It's just what happens when you don't have a mind <laughs> I just don't have the filter, you know so this is, I think it's just the the actuality is and this is very, very, very rare. So this is totally rare. This is like you know when I sit down with with Aja or Ben or any of these people, they're always quizzing me about this. Like it's a very rare form of it. You know, it's a very specific. It's it's not the case for do you, everybody. Do
0: you see yeah. angels, subtle beings?
1: You know, I'm very, very uninterested. Not not as a stance, but literally completely uninterested in those alternate planes of reality moving.
0: So you're picking up stuff They're on right. this plane, but stuff that we shouldn't ordinarily be able to know. It's mainly on this level, this plane of existence.
1: Yeah, yeah
0: ordinary plane of existence
1: yeah on an ordinary plane of existence um yeah i'm just it's basically in order to feel or see or to see you the way i describe it to people is i'm actually seeing the coding of your being and reading that coding to see brown shirts i always point back to the movie the matrix because it's so good it was so in so many ways it's the way it is so in the way that they write code to see the the world so in reality we don't actually live in a ship that's gray and you know in reality we live in total we are total bliss total light total fabulousness and then all the rest of it's coded and I see code and over time my systems learn to read the code but in the few days of awakening i couldn't it was just this overwhelm of information but unbelievably awesome at navigating right because now the mystery is moving me there's not there's no separate identity separate mind moving it's just this mystery totally moving but but it it certainly took a while to navigate that dance (laughs) yeah not that is not for everybody i had and for many many years i had a, a, a lot of people around me sort of have this like little prayer they would say every night please don't make me wake up please don't bring the enlightenment because oh, they didn't want to be I, like you they didn't want to have to do what i was doing they didn't have to want to have to go through this it was like oh my god scratch any request for me to ever like never let this happen to me please never <laughs> yeah
0: well, that's interesting. You know, I mean, in high school science class, they, when you learn about the electromagnetic field and all the different frequencies that exist and how visual light is just a small percentage of that, they, they tell you, you wouldn't want to see it all. You know, there'd be too much. So they teach you, in, even in high school, that, you know, we're kind of like filters, which our senses can pick up a certain sliver of the f- full range of possibilities of... Yeah, and same with large and small. You know, we're kind of at a scale where we're not seeing the very large or the very small. We're, we're just kind of tuned into a certain level of perception. And, and then uh, there's also the gross and subtle thing. I mean, I just, you know, was chatting with a friend who has been a friend for quite some time. He just happened to tell me he sees angels all the time. I never knew that. And then, then I started asking him, you know, like, every little thing, are they here? Are they here? You know, we were like yeah, in, a, yeah, yeah. We were in so an air, airport elevator, and I said, are they here in the elevator? Or no? And he just kind of smiled. Then afterwards, he said, ooh, he said, they just told me, don't point us out to people. If they're meant to see us, they'll see us. I guess you're meant to see what you're seeing, and it's, it's not necessarily the celestial field, the angelic fields. You've You've just somehow lost your filters in terms of, perceiving all kinds of things that people ordinarily can't perceive. and
1: Yeah. Yeah. Luckily, the dominant theme of what I'm accessing, I have a couple of layers, and one of the layers is just that authentic impulses, moment to moment, that are moving. So, you know, in some, we have to keep using words, they're a little too big, but we'll try. For me, it's like in oneness. They're just these authentic movements in oneness, but how it's perceived is like for you. Or for me, like you woke up at whatever time in the morning, the first level of perception is just this unique essence that, and we haven't actually met, but I read your essence to read just even in you hearing your voice, it's an essence I'm reading. And so it's just the oneness has this essence move, moving. It's just an essence moving. And it's me reading it to go, that's rip and Rick's awake, or whatever.
0: uh, What what state were you in at that time, at 2.30 in the morning your time? Were you in what people would conventionally call sleep, and you were aware during sleep, and therefore having these experiences?
1: Yeah, I have a funny relationship with sleep. It's sometimes like this, but not all the way. Sometimes I sleep like a normal person sleeps, and I quite love it, and it's wonderful when that happens, and it it happens, Uh, and it's great. But lots of times it goes like this, like say you're with somebody sleeping, and they ask you, like, are you asleep yet? <laughs> you know, that little moment, like, have you fallen asleep yet? And I have to look and look at what's going on. And I think, you know, I don't think I always drive this car. And I don't always talk to these people. So I think I must be dreaming. So I'll say, yes, I'm asleep. You know, so I'm, I'm always awake. And so I'm awake inside of a dream or I'm awake inside of this dream.
0: <laughs> and even when you're not dreaming, you're awake inside of deep sleep.
1: Yeah, so there's a there's a level that's always awake, that's always that's always awake here. Yeah, exactly. The, the thing that filters information and turns off, blue for me, so I don't have it, so I'm always open. I'm just one, I'm just the oneness. You know, the form is quite separate. Yeah, and what would
0: happen to the universe if that slept? <laughs>
1: Well, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's the reality, because reality
0: is awake, you know? I'm kind of interested in litmus tests of awakening in a way, because it's such a cheap word these days. Everybody says, oh, and I had my awakening, you know. That's a and,
1: cheap word.
0: Yeah, and I, um, I feel like the culture, the spiritual culture, could use greater clarity of definition in terms of what we really mean by awakening and a number of other such terms. So that oh, my not brother from the...
1: another mother! <laughs> I can be with you more.
0: Yeah.
1: Yes, it would help. It would yeah. help people to have that because uh, I, I don't align to a hierarchy, which is all in my books and all in my blogs. I don't give a flying fuck if you're awake or not. It doesn't particularly matter. I'm sorry, I have a gutter mouth. Does this all have to be edited? <laughs> um, but I, yeah, I don't actually care if you're awake or not, and I think that all these people are extraordinary teachers whether they're awake whether you know there's extraordinary teaching but if there's some kind of clarity about what the teaching is it's so helpful and so i couldn't agree with you more that these are very general terms that define from you know for me it's a very narrow you know what i define as awake is very 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 narrow but but you know for instance my buddy aja has a much wider one you know, and other people have much, much bigger, much more wider categories.
0: Well, it's kind of like the word education. Someone asks, are you educated? And, you know, maybe you've graduated from high school. Is that educated? Or is it a college degree that's educated? Or graduate school? I mean, at what point do you say you're educated? It's kind of like that with Awakening. To Unless
1: my... you're on the other side. Like, from, from this point through, it's very, very clear where identities begins. Or where no identity ever begins begins if nobody's home at all but you have to be it's a kind of a sense that it's a kind of a sense organ that only opens the other side after you die you know like death being the enlightenment or the awakening or awakening into your true self it's like when you're fully awake into your true nature you have this unbelievable amount of sense organ and part of that sense organ is very aware of when there's identity with form and when there's not, although I know people like to think they can sense it and likely they can, it's it's like blaringly obvious. On the other side,
0: it's almost like there's people like... are wearing a sign or something.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's like they're actually reaching out and touching you. You know, like it's like someone's. It's like this one's awake. <laughs> you know, that one. It's I, not, but it's so, the reason I think it's so hard to talk about, it's almost sacrilege for you and I to have this conversation is because of the ingrained idea of hierarchy, that somehow being awake is like the ultimate thing to do I mean it's huge part of that cultural uh, saturation that I talked about that's such a distortion that like this is the ultimate thing for a human being to do is to fall into their true nature, and I totally understand why some people talk about that, and some teachers—it's a very clear pointer in a specific way. But all of these pointers, as we keep saying again and again, they aren't a platitude. You can write on a sign and hang outside and use it for all occasions. You know, they're—they're they're alive. These pointers are very alive. They only—they only have relevance in a moment, and then they fall apart again. And so, because. Um, Because it's not true. (laughs) You can be totally awesome, and that was, you know, we were talking about that, totally awesome, totally amazing, totally a brilliant teacher, incredible contributor, incredible human being with tons of clarity, tons of sensitivity, tons of life and beauty. I mean, you're not fully into your true nature. You can live a gorgeous life. You can have total fulfillment, total peace. It's not a prerequisite. And in fact, it's a big can of whoop-ass. It's an unbelievable roller coaster ride that you don't get to get off of, you know. Well, hang on and a second. If that's what you want.
0: So I mean, the kind of things you just alluded to—totally awesome, totally incredible. I mean, we can we can pick out great people like Einstein or Nelson Mandela or somebody like that who are just you know these amazing, wonderful personalities who have contributed so much to the world. That doesn't imply that they're awake to their true nature, and I think most people understand that. You know, it doesn't, you know, just being sort of amazing in a relative sense doesn't mean you're awake to your true nature. And being awake to your true na- nature doesn't mean you're going to be a standout in a relative sense. You might be quite, you know, uh, nondescript.
1: Yeah, exactly. Because I think the call to awaken to a true nature has this some kind of recognition of specialness, which is actually true. You are incredibly special. You're the one, you know. You're, you couldn't be more special in your life as it is right now. Uh, and being awakened to your true nature doesn't make you more special no. than before you were awake and at all.
0: And you're not special in some way that the world is necessarily going to applaud or recognize.
1: No, right. no. So we got that. And I think the other reason that people are sort of gunning in this direction is because they live with a lot of suffering. And the idea is that in that place there's no more suffering, which is which is true, but it doesn't mean there's no more pain. Pain is the human form, it's what happens, and you, but you can actually have quite a suffering free dream, and not be awake to your true nature, you can live with ease, you can live with fulfillment, you can live with peace, and that has a lot to do with healing, with knowing how to heal the, the traumas in our system, so you can have a free, you know, fulfilled, peaceful life at some level along the continuum, and and all of this isn't to say give up the dream of enlightenment by any means, all of it is to say is that at every step in the journey, move as you are called, and ultimately at each of those steps you have equal access to peace, because it's your nature, whether you're awake to it or not, to fulfillment, to uh, love, and to awesomeness. <laughs> you know, every one of us are so incredibly unique with so much to offer but as we are. And to just not miss that heading on a quick train to get somewhere. Oh, yeah. You know, that,
0: don't pass so up the future, the present for some glorious future.
1: Don't give up the the, the beauty of your own present moment and yeah. who you are. Right. To, to get to some idea that that's, wh- that's when it gets good, over there.
0: No, I agree know? with that. But, um, but a minute ago you said that you, know, you don't necessarily buy into the notion that um, falling into your true nature or self-realization is sort of the ultimate goalpost of human life. Um, and you know I must admit that that's kind of been my model all along, that you know people might be awesome in various ways, or going through all kinds of experiences and so on and so forth, but there's this kind of evolutionary stream in the universe that uh, tends toward self-recognition and that, you know, forms, our, our nervous systems are evolved to be more and more sophisticated, more and more complex so as to be capable of that self-recognition that like a stone isn't going to accomplish it very well or, a, you know, an aardvark or, or something but that with this human nervous system we have that possibility.
1: I would agree in some of what you're saying and not agree in others. So, um. I think I mean obviously I'm living proof of the correctness of that you know that ultimately regardless of what kind of pains in the system or whether you're even aware or not your true nature is going to find you yeah. you know
0: And if we and if we regard the universe as being orchestrated by some vast intelligence which wants wants your true wants to find its true nature in in hey, each. I, that's
1: why I would disagree. Okay. It doesn't need to find itself. It it's itself. And a rock is as valid and essential, and the world would be less without a rock. Oh, I agree with that. So, that does, so rocks don't need to wake up. No, and ro- rocks can't wake up, you know, because... Well, this is it. There are actually some uh, rocks that are awake. There are some mountains that are awake. Oh, true, Aronachala, there you go. Yeah, Aronachala, exactly. Big Sur, big chunk of Big Sur is very awake. Rocks can wake up, but not all of them need to. And it's not, a, it's not important for rock nature. And oneness loves being rock. It doesn't want to be awake. It wants to be rock. It wants to be Rick. It wants to be Kieran. It wants to be... It is what it is. It's not looking for itself. That's not God doing that.
0: Okay, so let's keep, let's keep chewing on this metaphysics for a minute. Do you see there being a a kind of? I mean, we're trying to filter this through human understanding here, which might be totally inadequate, might not be possible. We'll
1: give it a try. We'll do our best. Please forgive us the errors.
0: (laughs) Do you you see there being a like Andrew Cohen always used to talk about evolutionary enlightenment, and he, and I guess the basic principle was that there's a sort of a an evolutionary. Momentum or purpose to the universe that it's kind of evolving in order to and we start with you know the big Bang and then we get stars and the stars eventually explode and that causes creates heavy elements and the heavy elements create bodies and to make a long story short and the, and those bodies can have a conversation like you and I can so uh, and can ha- can sort of awakening can take place through the instrumentality of a body as, as was your experience. So do you see that as kind of part of some cosmic game that, that everyone is playing and that has certain kind of stages? No. no.
1: That's what I see as that's the mental mind interpreting reality. It starts to tell the story. Minds start to tell stories. Minds need an A, B, a C equals something. So it's putting that filter on really beautiful, glorious, creative movements that are fulfilled in itself. They don't need a better purpose. They are the purpose. It's just the joy of creativity that's moving. So to filter it and say, well, the Big Bang was in order to get to where we are today, that's a mental filter on a creative movement you know, sure, what the heck, throw that filter on. But it isn't necessarily reality's filter, because reality doesn't need to be filtered. It's already said it. It said it. It said, it. It said Big Bang. So we
0: Where's have that? laws of nature, right? We have gravity, and we have the speed of light, and we have you know, all kinds of things that govern our physical universe. Illusory, though, as though, though they may be on some ultimate level, they certainly function well on relative levels. Uh, now, would you say that then, and this is just to belabor the, this point we're already discussing, would you say that there's a force of evolution that's like a law of nature that is some kind of driving tendency on some deep level that motivates things in some way. Okay,
1: Absolutely. Elaborate on that. I would. What I see when I'm reading the code, when I'm watching that, there is a the momentum of creativity. So at the level of energy, for instance, the electron is actually magnetically attracted to the proton. And it moves, that's what makes it move. So there's an elementary form. That movement, the reason it's magnetically attracted is before it is that electron, before it's quarks, before it's fractals, it is love. The very first form, so so the, the universe itself, you, right now, looking out your eyes, talking to me, listening to me, being here together, this is one, just one. And it is a vast, still, unbelievably silent thing. And that's what we are very literally in this moment right now to each other, with, with each other, just this. But this, although we use the word silence or stillness, it's not the right word because it actually has movement. And that movement is love. And that love is the first form of the universe. And that form, that love has movement. And it comes into forms, which then become fractals and quarks and electrons and protons. So that that magnetic movement of an electron constantly attracted to a proton, it's love. Magnetically attracted, right? Love. And that's what's moving and propelling form. And we have creativity, rocks have creativity, animals have creativity, because we are one. It is one. And it's that creativity that creates, that's the momentum. And what happens is in in our life, so much more practically, in my body, in your body, in everybody's body, we have authentic joy. That when we are embodied in our joy, just something happens. You know, I'm having this awesome time right now on this interview. It's super fun to be with you and, and have this level of conversation and connection. And that me embodying this is creative. It's going to create more of these opportunities. You know, it did for you. It, it burst but at the gas pump as an actual series. As an ongoing series, and just before we went live, you had this beautiful, creative, you know, juiciness of, isn't it so fun? Imagine if I was doing this every morning, you know, like, that's creation, that's momentum. We also have inside of us, unconsciously moving, pain, trauma, trapped in the system, and partly because it's unconscious, it's an incredibly powerful creator, And it is basically filtering the way we see things. So we're seeing, we just see that filter, right? So if if I have a pain body that's about rejection, and I'm afraid that what I'm saying to you might be rejected. I'm just grabbing something that comes along. So every time I interface this conversation with you, I'm going to see rejection, because this is the pain. Rejection, rejection. It filters it and then creates it. I'm going to have a lot more experiences of rejection because I'm standing in rejection and I'm embodying it and it creates. So that's my two and a half minute attempt. Let, let me try to the move of the, the force inside of the one that's creating.
0: Let me try to restate what you said to make sure I understand it and you can correct me if I'm wrong. So what you're saying is that there's a fundamental force that creates the universe, really, and that's love, and that it's responsible for, you know, everything from the microscopic, you know, subatomic particles going around the, to the to the macroscopic, probably you would say it has to do with the, you know, interaction of the galaxies. Just this the
1: magnetic of, attraction of planets and yeah. galaxies. Yeah. Well, you have
0: different forces. Sometimes it's gravity and sometimes it's the weak force and the strong force and all that, but... Uh, and what you're saying though is that this uh, pure force gets filtered or thwarted by some filters that get structured into our relative apparatus. Uh, in the case you mentioned the pain body and that and so then when filtered this creative force of love uh, Kind of still expresses but it can be, express itself in a distorted way because of those filters So the the abuse that you suffered as a child, for instance, physical abuse and so on, that was pure love distorted through the filters of whoever was the abuser.
1: That's so beautifully, yes, yes, because I mean, ultimately that's the foundation of me as a teacher and my teaching. The first form of the universe is love, and love is effortless. We know it, when you fall in love, it's effortless. When you think of your loved one, you love to think of the people you love because of the, just that effortless quality of love. And it gets distorted and distorted and distorted. And the, the absolute end level of distortion is basically we're calling it, we call it pain. We call it pain because we're actually labeling the effort. There is so much effort at that point that it has it so, been so distorted away from effortlessness that it's so full of effort it's pain it's totally wildly distorted and my entire work as a spiritual teacher is to show people how to take that pain and unwind it back to effortlessness we have equal ability awake or not awake to your true nature to embody effortless peace it's your it's who you are it's literally your, not just your birthright it's what's hearing these words? What's looking out of your eyes? identified as a person or not. It doesn't make a difference. It's who you are. And it's, your, it's what, you're, what you're able to do. So my work as a teacher is to show you how to do that, to take that and make it effortless.
0: Isn't it easier, uh, if you're awake to your true nature, to function in an effortless way? Because you're kind of if you're not awake to your true nature, aren't you sort of caught up on one level over another? or uh, You're estranged from I mean, nature itself functions according to the principle of least effort. If you throw a ball, it takes the most efficient possible path through the air, uh, given all the, all the forces yeah. and, and influences that are acting yes. upon it. Yes, and which, is,
1: which is so beautiful. I love that thing that you're saying. That's a great point. But actually, I would, I would say in theory, yeah. In actuality, no. I mean, we know a lot, a lot, we hear about all the time, very clear, awake teachers who just, they just, they still have a, a, their DNA, they're still humans, their DNA is still moving in effort. They still have sexual addictions running, power addictions running, you know, delusion. And I mean, our world is planted and most of the people listening to this conversation have been harmed by some level of delusion through a spiritual practice or spiritual teacher So in practice, no, all of us know people, and for me it was that my first boyfriend, he was a totally peaceful, effortless, very, very clear human. He had a very karmically clear pathway inside of him. He had very little suffering, I mean, our beautiful, my beautiful friend Shanti, although he experiences pain, that is a very clear karmic being, before he woke up, there wasn't much trauma, there wasn't much pain. Even
0: after he began to wake up, or he had several stages of awakening, but, you know, nature put him through a lot of difficulties and, and health problems and everything because he After
1: was, awake! Yeah, because yeah, he, was, after, he kept so trying perhaps.
0: to ride bicycles and, and, you know, nature kept, if we want to refer to this as nature, kept saying, no buddy, that's not what you're meant to do, so stay in bed for six months until you get the Yeah! <laughs>
1: you know, and that is one awake dude. Aja, my brother, is so clear, crystal, crystal clear. And that guy got Bell's palsy, you know, like, a few years back. Like, it doesn't stop pain from happening. It doesn't stop. But how he lived with it was effortless. That's how he embodied it. Theoretically, yeah, but in actuality, no, we have equal access to it. We just need to know how. In my offerings, I have a. I work one-on-one with people, or I do classes with people, or I, I work in person with people. In those different offerings, I work with people who have severe, severe trauma, like, you know, at the ritual abuse layer, or just, you know, like, insurmountable if you were actually working with a mind or psyche, that it couldn't unwind that level of trauma. Um, so I work with that all the way down to people who have quite normal functioning, you know, normal dysfunction, you know, just like, quite nice lives, but they're moving inside of the insane culture, and they just don't, you know, just... Like I have a, a class coming up through the holiday season. It's my first year doing it, but I think it's going to be annual. I, and I'm just focusing on food, and I think in the future years going to be like food, booze, sex, and drugs or something like that. <laughs> because the holidays are when it brings it all up, you know, this tough time. So it's living in the insanity of our culture and not knowing how to be effortless just in relationship with people. Or in, you know, so I'm, I have this class coming up on food. It's like how to have an effortless relationship with food because we, every one of us have such a management program with food. We're just constantly managing it for the good, for the bad, whatever, but there's effort, all this effort, or dating, or financially, or whatever, where there's this, this, this external management, which is stealing the peace, stealing the, the effortless peace of every moment. So that's my work as a teacher, is is the how, how how to do it. Like, so from severe trauma in your system, it becomes hard to figure out how to be effortless to no trauma in the system, but we're living in a pretty crazy world, you know, that's built on a lot of ridiculous assumption, and I don't know how to date or, (laughs) you know, or eat dinner or whatever effortlessly without some level of management.
0: Oh, there's a lot of levels to what you're saying, and it actually sort of weaves back to your own story, with, in which in which you had a, a profound awakening, but you know really radical. But that wasn't the end of it, because then ensued years of what we might call housecleaning, complete restructuring and refabrication of your whole everything. Mecha- yeah, from the DNA on up.
1: From the Uh DNA and up, exactly, and in fact even this Christmas last year for nearly three months my whole pelvis just went offline and it was literally to change the cell structure, the bone structure, like everything just like spontaneously redesigned itself.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and so let let me throw out a quick thing about effortlessness and then get back to this point. And it seems to me that you could kind of give people tools for being effortless with regard to food or this situation or that situation, but ultimately don't we want to um, arrive at a state in which we're spontaneously effortless the way nature itself functions uh, because we're functioning from the level it, at which nature functions. You know, I mean, that's, that's where we have our stand, and therefore everything that our relative personality and body and everything do are so attuned to that, that, you know, we kind of display the qualities of nature itself in our relative life and and effortlessness being one of those qualities.
1: Absolutely. And if I can jump in, because I feel like this is where you're headed. One of the ways to ideally and theoretically and possibly get there is to awaken into your true nature. However, why don't you start that that direction right now? (laughs) You know, it's not the only way to do it. There's other ways to do it. And you could start heading in that direction right now and just have a much more peaceful, much more easy right now. And if you just guide moment to moment like that, ultimately, you may end up awakening into your true nature. Just, it may just happen, or it would be irrelevant because you're having this effortless, peaceful taste of yourself in life.
0: Well, two metaphors come to mind. One is like, you know, if you want to make a tree more healthy, you can do things to the leaves and branches, but probably the most you're going to get the most bang for the buck if you water the root and it's going to help help the whole tree flourish. Another is that, and I've used these analogies many times in these le- oh, interviews, but... Yeah.
1: I'm a, yeah, exactly, it's the best we can do because words don't really fit. Yeah. yeah, it's great if we call into poetry. I love analogy, go there. Yeah, and another yes. would be like, you know, a
0: table or a chair has four legs and you can get the whole table to move by pulling any one of the legs and the other legs and the whole table are going to come along. So there, there are a number of different kind of ways at which you can approach this thing and wh- whichever angle you take... Uh, it's going to kind of move the whole thing. Um, although perhaps to stretch the analogy a bit, there might, you might uh, do more with less effort by pulling a particular leg. <laughs> In other words, you can, you can muck around on, on surface yeah. levels for the rest of your life and, and never affect a really fundamental change, but if you can somehow get to a more root level, more radical level, then all the other things can, can come along as a consequence of that.
1: It's a beautiful analogy. Sometimes I like to wander in and just be a little more precise because distortion and delusion is so easy in this field. Uh, so, yeah, I would totally agree. It's a beautiful analogy. The source, the quickest access to source in any moment for you is internally. Just move inside. That, you know, like that it isn't enlightenment is the source or you know, some deep, owie, you know, deep traumatic system piece in your system. Like, you don't have to journey far to the source. The source is just what's arising internally in this moment for you. And the effortless approach is a very warm welcome of whatever is arising. And that it's it's that simple. It's that right now. And it's that hard to get to. That is very hard for people to get to. They would rather get on a treadmill that says one day enlightenment than to in this moment, right now, warmly welcome themselves what's arising. Sometimes that's Herculean.
0: Yeah, and would you agree that in doing that, you're not, that doesn't imply that you're going to kind of click into the level of clarity that you clicked into in your big aha moment or that there, someone like Adya lives as a kind of a matter of course throughout his life, uh, but at least there's some, you're moving in the right direction, there's some taste of that. Uh, and I, the reason I want to say that is that if you, if you give people the expectation that just sort of, you know, accepting the moment, turning within in the moment is the, is, is the full enchilada, it's going to create doubts in their minds because they're going to feel like, well, I know there's more than this. This is good. It's good, good that I'm you know, d- doing this, but I know there's more.
1: Uh, well, this is why it's like, buy the book. <laughs> the book is awesome, Tools for Sanity. It's on Amazon. Just type in Tools for Sanity. It's a short book, like you said. It's simple, and there's four steps, and that's just one of them. But there are four steps to take and to not belittle feeling good. Like feeling good in this moment allows for creativity of more feeling good. And that more like, so, so that moment where you're saying, you know, oh, I, I'm stopping here and this actually feels good. Let's, let's linger in that the value of that. You know, if everybody on the planet had just one moment right now of just feeling welcome. You know, like this internal warm welcome, just as you are, with nothing needing to change at all, it becomes one spot on the planet where peace lives in this moment. And if we were all doing that, that's a lot of peace. Reminds me
0: of Bob Marley, remember? One world, you know that song?
1: One love, let's get together
0: and feel feel all right.
1: right. That's a powerful song. We like that song because there's power in that without flipping into a kind of cheesy new agey or, you know, like oversimplification. but, um, But to actually resonate in the only place any of us are really broken is not knowing how incredibly loved and welcomed we are in every movement of us, every movement, when we can just touch into that ourselves.
0: So you're saying that a state of greater well-being exists within us and is accessible to some degree at least at any moment, and that um, the more we access it, the more perhaps we're able to access it, and that it sort of is a kind of a, one of those positive feedback loops, and uh, there's kind of a, it's like a... A barometer or, the, or an indicator that you know we're moving in the right direction when we when we tap into it to some degree and we can acquire a, the kind of a, um, automatic ability to tap in the more we tap into it the better we get at tapping into it
1: yes and, and what we're talking about tapping in isn't because this is a delusion or distortion that ha- can happen a lot is activating a feeling state in myself where I just feel good right that's not what I'm talking about no that's an external efforting yeah. of, you know, like what I'm talking about drugs is... Drugs might do that temporarily. Drugs can do, exactly. Drugs can do that, a thousand affirmations a day can do that, uh, just some kind of external... Uh, processing where you're going to walk into the room and even if something's crappy, you're going to find the silver lining anyway. You know, you're going to look for the good in every situation. There must be a reason for something. There must be a reason. What is it? All of that mechanism, all of that, that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is cultivating a state of profound love and welcome and compassion for all of you that arises in a moment. So this very warm, compassionate embrace, because that's the piece that's missing—not a constant state of joy. What's actually missing is the, is that deep loving and welcome, because that's our tr- thats your true nature. What the heck is true nature if it's not that? So have it in this moment, you know, like. Don't like, don't take the trip I did. It's too long. It's too hard. It's too awful.
0: <laughs> we still haven't talked about your trip as much as we're going to. Um, and, we
1: got two hours. We've just begun. Yeah.
0: And there are a number of threads in this conversation that I want to come back and and build up on more. But since you mentioned this, you know, how do you do what you just said?
1: Yeah. How do you do that? Well, how do you,
0: how do you cultivate it? Especially in a busy life, as you mentioned earlier, you know we're not the Buddha sitting under a tree. We got kids to pick up. We have got soccer practice. We got this and da, da da da.
1: Yeah, and if you're, if it's me as a teacher, that's that's where I want you to be. Like that's actually the only place you're gonna get it. You know, in reality, it, in an effortless way, is in the paying of the mortgage or in the picking up the kids or the making the dinner or the phone. You know, like that's where the joy of creativity. That's that's God. That's oneness. Yeah, but for a
0: lot of people, that's, they feel beleaguered. They feel exhausted. They, you know, exhausted. Just too much coming at them.
1: Exactly. The book is going to unwind that very, very specifically and practically, I think. That was my intention, anyway, of that book. So, step one, which is the first tool for sanity, which is awareness, which is very effortless, right? There's a part of you that couldn't turn off awareness. You're always aware. Even in deep sleep, if somebody crawled into bed beside you, you would be aware. You may not remember it in the morning, but you would be aware. So it's always about you. It's totally effortless. It's actually one of the most, it's, it is the most effortless quality about you is awareness. And it's using that awareness to be aware of what is moving internally in you. So there you are, overwhelmed, you know, by whatever, dinner's on, the kids are, and the dog is barking at you, and your partner is demanding some kind of something, and you haven't even landed from your day. Can you be aware of your internal movements, of what's happening? Frustration, fatigue, exhaustion, wanting to please, wanting to love, wanting to connect. And we don't. We very habitually block being aware of our internal space, and instead, project out. And that is the beginning of exhaustion, right there. So the internal greeting of yourself in that moment, again, it's just one. So when we're greeting ourselves, that dog, that child, that partner, that whatever, is being greeted. And, and again, I recognize, I have a privilege of seeing way down here at the core you know, at the code level, that we're all one, we're all greeted when we're greeted, and the power is internally, not externally. But, so I realize that might be a bit of a leap, so that's where it's like, I think, read read this chapter, it breaks it down a lot more, but essentially that's the first step, is this cultivating a willingness to receive ourselves without story, without judgment, because that's where the block is, I'm not allowed to feel angry, I, I have no time to feel overwhelmed. I shouldn't feel exhausted, I don't know what to do about my exhaustion, so I'm not going to feel it. We've got this storytelling, you know, like, I'm not a good spiritual person or advanced spiritual practitioner if I, you know, want my kid to shut up, you know, like, so I'm not going to feel that, even if that's there, you know. So and the word
0: cultivating implies that it takes time to cultivate. It's not like you, it's like, you know, you don't learn to play a violin, you know, like an expert in one day, it takes time to, to so re- rewire the neurons. but. But you start making sounds the first time you try.
1: (laughs) Well, exactly. You start making the time isn't huge because it's self-authenticating because it feels so much better. Yeah. So it's it's an act of courage the first time, Mm -hmm. even the second or third. But then you can't give it up. It actually takes more. It takes effort to block.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: It's actually more effortless to be aware. There's actually something externally, efforting to block this awareness. And so when you're, so the first few acts of courage to actually undo those blocks and, and acknowledge it, it's more effortless. So it's very quickly self-authenticating because it becomes actually a little bit hard to pick the blocks back up again. So it's,
0: someone who's doing this, would they tend to um, drop um, chemical uh, methods of blocking such as even alcohol or whatever, do you, would you, or would that thwart or hamper one's uh, ability to culture the kind of awareness you're talking about and therefore they become distasteful
1: let me think about that we are doing sort of chemical you know prohibitors whether it's prescription medication or a cigarette or or a, you know all the addictions we have people who are addicted to sex go in for touch you know or, or attention sexual attention so we move into these addictive patterns um for many many reasons uh, and those, and it's usually pain in the system that's doing that. So when we unblock and begin to be aware of the pain, uh, sometimes the compulsion to do it is even stronger, you know, so... Because the, so, the pain is more acute. The pain is more available, the pain is more available, and part of the block... But at if which you give into that compulsion, happens, aren't you
0: going to kind of um, defeat your purpose and in, in really becoming more aware?
1: I don't think so at all. The mind would definitely think so, but I disagree because I believe this is how we begin to unwind that compulsion. It's how we begin to heal it. It's an essential, you can't have healing without awareness. It doesn't exist. So it's an essential step on ending these patterns, but it's essential step in also coming home to your true nature, your true ability, whether it's an awakening to it or not, it's, it's essential. It's not optional. <laughs> it's, it's, it's essential.
0: Well, the awareness thing is essential, I was saying that, but I was just saying, I mean, it was a different question, it was like whether this kind of new orientation to life that you're espousing might cause uh, artificial means of altering consciousness or, blo- or, or blotting out pain to become uh, distasteful and that one they would just yeah. sort of drop off.
1: Yeah, and I, I don't think step one will, but step two definitely will.
0: Which is acceptance.
1: <laughs> Which step two is acceptance. And for me, what I mean by that word, again, very vague word. It's really hard to know what that word means. But so what I mean is a very warm welcome. And by warm, I mean like the beloved guest at the door. Like your your loved one shows up at the door. And that the joy, the welcome, the warmness, that's acceptance. Greeting what arises with a warm welcome it doesn't take effort uh, when i talk about greeting a beloved at the door it sort of feels like you have to stop what you're doing and go to the door and you know it's a, you know it feels like effort it, it's a simpler movement than that but i'm just trying to give the visceral sense of it but it's just this compassionate response just a warm willingness so you're walking in the door the spouse is screaming at you the kids are screaming at you the dogs are screaming at you you know, there's mail everywhere. You're still thinking about the conversation you had with your boss on your way out. You know, like it's all, ah, in that moment, if there's this awareness that I'm, oh, ah, you know, I'm overwhelmed, I'm stressed, I want to please, and there's this warm welcome to it, primarily compassion. Yes.
0: I yes. think A lot of people right now are thinking easier said than done.
1: It's actually the most simplest thing in the world to do, and every impulse in our body wants to do the opposite. We are conditioned to insanity. We are conditioned to effort. We are conditioned to pain. Yeah, we don't have to, every one of us, look around the world, you know, yeah. However, it is self-authenticating. So it's an act of courage the first few times. But is actually more effortless because what is your actual nature, awake or not, is love. We are very loving. Almost every action, every one of us does on the planet is traced to love. I mean, it literally is love. But we move. The reason that we have the spouse, the kids, the dogs is love. Yeah. The reason that we came home was love. The reason we went to work was love. To pay the bills to support these. Love to love. We, the only thing we're doing here is loving. Dancing in love. You know, that's what we're doing.
0: And if we refer back to what we were talking about earlier, and taking it to extremes, even the suicide bomber or the rapist or something, it's just a very severely, distorted. severely filtered, distorted expression of love.
1: Exactly. Exactly. It's entirely filtered and incredibly distorted. Uh, and it is. It's a movement of love. So for us to greet what's arising inside of us in this moment with love is, is, is quite effortless. It actually takes more effort to push it away, to judge it, to condemn it, to, you know, repulse it. That's effort. So it is self-authenticating. So the first few times, yeah, it's an act of courage, you know, and, and maybe it happens in quieter, spacious times the first few times, you know, not when it's all coming down on you. But in spacious or maybe it's with simpler emotions, like just trying to find your way to be really acceptant of frustration or overwhelm and just meet it in love and work your way towards jealousy, rage, hatred, you know, to warmly welcome in your heart, which is effortless. If you subscribe to my website, I give you a, a teaching every month. I have to write them ahead of time because I am terrible grammar grammar, and I have to give them to somebody to edit. So I just finished writing next month, which is December, which is the glory and beauty of rage. Like how incredibly awesome and beautiful rage is and essential. You know, and it's these helpful tips, you know. But anyway, um, I'm a huge fan of rage, huge fan of anger. It's, it's extraordinarily beautiful. And to greet it in ourselves and to welcome it and to allow it. Maybe it takes a little while. But the first or second or third time you do it is only that's the only time it's an act of courage. Because then it's just too much effort to condemn it. It's too much effort to judge it. Just like you said, the trajectory of that tennis ball. All things in nature move towards effortless. It's more dominant because it's the, it's the, it's the default of everything. You know, it's home. It's home ground. Everything moves home. So when you're embodying that movement of effortless, you you can't, it's too hard to pick it back up, the effort up again. So that's step two. And yes, I absolutely think if you are giving your own frustration or overwhelm a beautiful internal hug, you are not going to need to reach for the glass of wine, the cigarette, sexual attention from somebody in the room, whatever you're... Compulsion, however it moves, chocolate, piece of cake, whatever it is, it's going to have less of it, yes. But I would warmly welcome those compulsions also (laughs) when they move. (laughs) Um, It's going to ironically ease it. But then the third step is really, really, really important, which is healing, which is what I call alchemy, which is that all things return home. Like you're talking about the trajectory of the tennis ball or like, you know, I think it's really easy for people to, I use this analogy because it's easy to access, that all the creeks and all the rivers on our planet move to the sea. They flow to the dominant current. So love is the dominant current of all things. Everything's flowing in that direction. But in order for a creek to actually be pulled into the river's current, it has to touch it. So if we're sitting on the riverbank and we're watching the creek flow and beside it is the river, we have to get off the riverbank and move the rocks and twigs so that the creek touches the river. And as soon as it does, it'll whoosh, The creek will push into the bigger stream. So in the sense that pain is effort, pure effort, as soon as we touch it in the same way the creek touches the, the river, we touch that pain with tenderness, with effortless with love it pff, flows in that direction pff, that's where it goes so so this is what I call alchemy this is a process and this is primarily uh you know when I'm working one-on-one I'm primarily doing healing work and teaching people how they can heal themselves uh it's not me doing it to them it's me showing them how they do it to them they do it to themselves because in my class work we we just look at Sanity patterns we move towards effortless patterns in the world, so it's kind of this setup. But anyways when I work one-on-one with people that is primarily what I am doing is I'm showing people how to touch Pain with love with effortless and how it will it unwinds. Because I'm at I'm up at that form level. I'm right at the code You know like I'm right at the energetic levels how I'm seeing everything so for me It was a huge part of my process when my mind blew a fuse and I popped open this began to spontaneously happen. All of this love that was now unfiltered and moving was hitting the extraordinary amount of pain. I mean, off the Richter scale of level of pain. So, so in reality, there's almost nobody on the planet that has the depth, the dark karma that I had, like I was the heaviest, as, as, it, as, it, as it can come, you know? So it was hitting this pain, um, and because also the filter of time was out, so the DNA, our DNA is old, very, very old. It's as old as humanity. It's the same forms. It's the same information growing itself. So it's hitting lifetimes of it, you know, all at once, this love. And what is it doing? It's touching it. And as soon as it touches, it, the pain is unwinding and, and filtering. And that process i mean it's all out of time but we filter everything with time so yeah that took it took years years and years to unwind these patterns and even as early as like last christmas there's whole new levels of rebuilding in my system that spontaneously happen Uh, but i'm channeling such an immense amount of energy often and i'm working with so much um pain just not not even here anymore, but just in the oneness, um, that it isn't sort of everybody's experience. know, I to want gain. to delve
0: back into your experience a lot more before we finish, uh, after we finish going through these four points, but um, you just said something that not very many people on the planet uh, are dealing with the same, same level of pain that I dealt with. Uh, did you mean people who have awakened? Because I mean, you know, you didn't get kidnapped from your parents and put into a brothel at the age of 12 or anything like, uh, of that nature. I
1: did. I did at that nature and actually even darker than that. Really? Yeah. 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 So it's, I don't like to go into
0: this because the mind likes
1: to pick it up and start to, and then it loses my teaching, you know, like, um, but no, no, the, the, both the events of my life and the levels of trauma in this lifetime and others, yeah, Mm -hmm. are on that Richter scale. It's, it's, uh, and I also never go into it because. Most human psyches can't handle the details, so it's not it's not worth talking about. It would overshadow um, the,
0: the message that you really want to convey. It deeply
1: overshadows yeah. the the message, but it is important enough to say that um, I had a gruesome walk before mm-hmm. awakening and after awakening, and it has brought me to a place as a teacher to be able to help.
0: <laughs> yeah. Two interesting points in there. When the postman knows you're going to move, he tries to deliver all your mail. But um, uh, this thing about it helping you as a teacher—very important point. I mean, if we lived this sort of rosy, nicey-nicey existence and and woke up, how can we relate to everybody in the world? You know, who is really going through it? So you—you went
1: different teaching because we do. We have some beautiful teachers on the planet that have. We even have one that I know of who has. No access to pain, period, like suffering. Never never been in this lifetime. Yeah. Not a broken bone, not a broken heart, nothing. And you know, Aud is quite a, I mean, Aja knows pain, obviously he knows pain, but he's a very light karmic being and these are magnificent teachers.
0: Yeah. You talk about Montino of- in the first one?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I Ben's a li- I love it because Ben's as light as it gets on the planet and I'm as yeah. dark as it gets on the planet. He's asking for
0: broken bones, man, with his rock climbing. I've been <laughs> teasing him about that.
1: He's <laughs> a gorgeous teacher. He's yeah, an yeah. amazing, beautiful teacher. And, and this is me. I mean, it's not particularly fair for me to, um, to put words on his work. That's up for him to do. But my interpretation, to be very clear, is that he is a magnificent teacher of limitless possibility which is a really essential part of our nature, awake or not. We, we have access to this, what well, you and I talked earlier about, this creativity, you know, and that is what is so awesome about him. He's like the world's foremost because he is literally living it. There's no block to that creativity. There's no pain interfacing or creating something different, right? So it's just joy body creating. So I think I think... They're very important teachers, it's really essential on our planet, and they, it's a specific, different teaching.
0: Yeah. All right, so, so the teaching point, from what, the conclusion from what we, that little interchange we just had is that there are all sorts of teachers on the planet, they've all been through different things, and that is all well and wisely put, because they're, they're each going to sort of resonate with a, a certain kind of person or a certain group of people who can best benefit from their, their particular experience and the way they convey it.
1: And when we come together, we've we've got all the points of the rainbow. Yeah, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. you know when Aja and I talk together, or Ben and I talk together, You know, a lot of people really love when Ben and I talk together because it, it's so whole, you know? like So all of us teachers are so unique, and we have these different flavors, and they're beautiful in the rainbow. And, and definitely a, my piece is the healing work, is that I'm here to bring the love and the healing and the clarity for sure. Okay,
0: let's get on to alignment.
1: Yes. Okay. So, yeah. So that's healing. That's alchemy and all of our systems need it. And then fourth and essential in it is what I call alignment, um, which I more specifically refer to as standing in the yes. So that's that place where you and I are talking about that creativity earlier where, you know, this is so fun. We're, we're having this awesome, you know, for me, it's Saturday morning. For you, it's in the afternoon, but this awesome connection, and it's super fun, and it's really joyous, and this is the most delicious place I could be right now. There's just nowhere else I would rather be, and no one else I'd rather be talking to, and this is so fabulous. This is my yes, and I stand in it, and I embody it, and that is my authenticity, right? That's basically me living in my authenticity, and I talk about alignment as guiding moment to moment by standing in that really I call it a delicious yes, because I'm trying to articulate the visceral sensation. It's not a mental pl- placement. It's an internal deliciousness. So at any moment, you know, you walk in the door, the, the spouse is yelling, the kids are barking, you know, the, the dogs are yelling, the kids are barking, which is often the case at my house. <laughs> That's totally true. My dogs totally talk to me. And the kid often yells. My my nephew, who she shares the, the place with, I don't have my own children, but... um. Yeah, so all that's moving, and what is it that you would love to be doing right now, the most delicious, awesome thing for you to do right now? And then go do it, and all of that is simple, but it's hard to do, because you've got to actually be aware enough to know what that is. Then you've got to go find the words to tell people that's what you're doing, and maybe that's lay on the couch with the kids on you, you know? And or maybe that's walk into a different room and close the door for a second and meditate. Or maybe that's go upstairs and lay down in your bed, like or maybe that's walk out and get back in the car and drive down the coast. Whatever it is.
0: Or maybe that's walk out of your office cubicle and go take a hike in the woods, but then you get fired and then you have a problem. So it's But
1: here's the piece. Here's the then you get fired and have a problem that that actually isn't true. Because that becomes the mindfulness. So when we stand in our authentic yes, every moment, there's only one of us here. It's, there's only one of us here on this planet. We don't actually have, in, in real authentic movements, we're not conflicting. We're not, it's, they're not conflicting movements. Every moment, because I'm, I'm able to talk about this because I'm looking at it all the time, every moment is ripe for every single person to be standing in that perfect, yummy place. Every moment is created for that, because that place of the most delicious yes on a visceral level is actually where there's no self, no separate self. Because all of the shoulds and the tryings and what I'm supposed to do and who they're supposed to do and my role, that's all the separate self. That's all courtesy of separate self. So the movement of just in this moment, I would love this, that's God. That's your oneness. That's the vast reality that you are whispering where to put your foot next. And when you actually put your foot there and when you actually do it, and I'm talking moment to moment, not generally. I would generally rather be in Jamaica with a pina colada than working my job. I'm talking moment to moment. Just It's only as big as this moment. When you actually stand there, you're in the Tao, you're in the waterway, you're in the right harmony. And that vast intelligence that's flowing through, that's whispering go there, is actually the oneness. that is, tr- that is The mind can't conceive of it because the mind has the filter, but it's actually filtering oneness. So it's the perfect place for your boss. It's the perfect place. Like, it's taking in all of those considerations. It's deeply in love with your boss. It's deeply in love with you. It's deeply integral. It's filtering this all this information that your mind couldn't possibly filter. So the experience of, like, well, let's just say in the spouse and the kids moving or something, when you walk in the door, your spouse is yelling at you, you know, did you get the milk go and get the milk there's no milk for breakfast in the morning like that's your job you know and if in your head you calculate you're like oh my god i forgot the milk that's what i have to go do but the true visceral sensation in your body is to just go lay down you have to find the words to say that which i recognize as courageous and language itself is conditioned we have to relearn how to speak in many ways to figure out how, because language is manipulative, and it's, it's very conditioned. So to find those words, and then to actually go and lay down, it's the right movement for everybody. And inside of the spouse, there's going to be this actual awareness. Like, truth always liberates, no matter what it is. It always liberates. Delusion always hurts. It's always effort. It doesn't matter what it is.
0: So it's a very hypothetical situation, but maybe you say something like, oh, I'm so sorry. I I did forget the milk. I'm really exhausted right now. If I go out and I'll probably have a car accident, let me just go lie down for half an hour and then I'll run right out and get the milk. You know, some little thing like that.
1: Go for it. Exactly. Give it a try. For me, I would say something like, oh, it's true. You did ask me to go for milk. And what I'm going to go do is lay down because that's what I need to do. (laughs) And then I'll
0: get the milk. I mean, you don't have to do or I wouldn't.
1: I wouldn't. I'm not going to get the milk till it's a deep yes. Because I already know that life is going to provide me what is needed for the morning. I just don't know how, and I don't know if it's milk.
0: A cow may show up on your doorstep. You never know.
1: <laughs> well, we have this mental story, right? But we just guide moment to moment, and then it finds out that, you know, we end up having this awesome meal, My, my the partner is super glad because you know, the kids just had a little nap with you, the kids, the kids, uh, nervous system settled down and connected, which is all they needed, and spouse, you know, your, your wife, or my husband, whoever, you know, is able to, um, whoever the spouse is, is able to actually just have a moment of no, nothing, you know, and able to make dinner, and, then we maybe have a great meal, and then maybe, uh, a neighbor calls and says, I'm coming by for tea, do you need anything? We yeah, say, kind of well, she thing. says, I'm at the store, what do you need? Or we go for a great walk, the whole family goes for a walk afterwards and we forget there's a little corner store. We always forget that corner store. You know, we get milk. Or, yeah. I don't know. I don't know how it gets provided, but I promise you, it gets provided.
0: Would you uh, agree that it might be easier to function this way and to go through these four steps if those with whom you're close are also doing it? Or, or doesn't that really matter?
1: It doesn't, it doesn't actually matter because truth always liberates. Period. Delusion always hurts. Period. So it doesn't always matter because just one person standing in truth is a relief. You know, um, it's more work. For the person standing in truth, when the others aren't, because they're still, you know. And I use the example in the book, and that car- that thing of on a bike ride, you know, you you know, it's such a yes to orchestrate this big bike ride, and everybody comes from all over town, and everybody's got their bikes on Saturday morning, and it is suddenly a deep yes for you to not bike at all with these people. You got to find the words, and when you find those words. self-authenticating the first few times it's an act of courage but then you start to notice just like in our hypothetical situation that everybody just got served so much better
0: i I could see this being abused too though where people just start indulging in their whims and you know they just start whatever little impulse comes up they do it and it ends up just you know it's really not a true alignment with truth it's it's more just like it childishness where they're, you know, just, I want to do this, I'm going to do this now, you know.
1: It'll show up, it'll show up really quickly because delusion hurts and truth liberates. And yeah, I mean, I had a, there's a great blog uh, entry on my website uh, from last month called Living for the Now or Living in the Present Moment, because they're very different. And living in the now or indulging those ones that aren't actually a true visceral yes, that they tend to be actually an avoidance of pain. There's some level of control and avoidance is what living in the now is. You know, and there's, it's, still, it's still pain or delusion at the wheel. And it comes back to get you in the butt.
0: So, do you feel we've done justice to those four points that you have in your book? Uh, have, at least yeah. in the context of this interview. Obviously, there's a lot more detail, <laughs> but have we, have we covered them adequately for now?
1: I feel like that's great. Uh, yeah, because ultimately... Um, you you kind of got to read the book to yeah, yeah. So get in
0: there. Sure. I think even the book is a taste. I mean, there's obviously you can go into it much more deeply than the book even affords. So yeah,
1: yeah, I think so too, exactly. Mm-hmm. But hopefully, I mean, did you find the book was clear? Like you were yeah. able?
0: To- I was a little tired. I was on an airplane, but it it seemed clear, and and uh, it really impressed me. I mean, when I got off the airplane the next day, I called you. I said, "Wow, that was a great book. Let's try to connect." Yeah,
1: yeah. I was grateful for that.
0: Thank you. So did these four steps kind of uh, did you go through these yourself, and that's how you discovered them after your awakening? This is how you kind of learned to adjust to the whole thing?
1: You know, it wasn't that specific for m- for my process. These mm. tools came along when I was working with others. Uh-huh. So it became the, in the interface of others of tr- of trying to point out that path of effortlessness, that yeah. path of pure peace that's available in this moment. And I kept referring to these same positions.
0: Okay, so let's get back to your story a little bit more because I think it's really fascinating. I don't think we've st- we still haven't done justice to it uh, in this conversation. You know, you've alluded to various stages of it and how difficult it was and this and that, but let's get into the nitty-gritty. So you, earlier in the interview you talked about how you had this profound awakening and you saw everything as light or as energy, and you know, as oneness, and, uh, and it took you a couple years, I, I think you said, to even put this in a spiritual context, kind of similar to Eckhart's thing, where he had this awakening, didn't know what the heck it was, and then eventually kind of began to put the pieces together.
1: Again, you know, what we were just talking about with alignment, in a way, oneness is totally deeply taking care of us in every moment. Um, And so it's, you know, and every one of us can look at our lives and see these miraculous moments where things just align so beautifully. Um, so definitely when I woke up that there was an alignment my, my friend Christopher um, He was I was living with a roommate at the time and my roommate had a, a crush on a boy Who I thought was just one of those flaky spiritual boys. <laughs> I like cowboys <laughs> These days I date Zen cowboys <laughs> but, So I thought it was just one of her flaky spiritual boys that she liked In reality, Christopher had had an amazing, amazing awakening five years earlier at the Richter scale of mine with nearly as, not as dark as my karma, you know, not not at all, but in that category, in the world, like had a lot of pain and had the same Richter scale of awakening very spontaneously and also he was quite a well-known actor in Hollywood. Um, So he was, uh, same career, same profession, you know, we were so similar Uh, and so... I popped open that putting on my shoes and I actually went out and it was so fun. It's the best story ever. I went out to meet this friend and ended up going to this part of town that would be like Rodeo drive. Um, and before I woke up, I would never have gone to that area. I purse as a person, I didn't feel that beautiful or that radiant. And I didn't, I, I was so self-conscious and I dressed slovenly a little bit. So to, and I would have been very self-conscious to go onto this high fashion street, but I was, it was all me. (laughs) Everything was me. And it's, I love to tell the story because it's like the absolute opposite of all sort of spiritual stories of like no possessions and living on a mountaintop, right? I'm in the heart of a big old city, and I'm like popped open, and it's all myself and there's no me and I can't even see form it's just energy and it's so beautiful so it wasn't everything. freaking
0: you out it, it was like you, you're your feeling was, whatever Not this is yet. it's really cool and I'm enjoying it
1: yeah yeah it's like a an acid trip I think although Eckhart clarified you know an acid trip even doesn't come close it's very small to what it actually is so it's like this massive trip I'm on um and it's all gorgeous uh, yeah it wasn't an issue at this point I mean it was weird I mean I there wasn't enough me there to even try to track anything so it was just this amazingness
0: but you're still able to drive a car and figure out how to get to a rodeo drive or whatever
1: sort of I mean pretty yeah it was kind of the next day that all started to fall apart but then it was a little bit I think I can't remember how I got there like like all of that's kind of a uh, you know just the mystery moved it at that time I didn't have a car so i was just riding my bike around the city anyway i lived in this great apartment and with my roommate and rode my bike everywhere so i must have ridden my bike down there so i rode my bike down there and it was all me and uh she was a yoga teacher she is a yoga teacher my friend first i met at a date for dinner I have no idea what happened there <laughs> but what i do remember afterwards is walking with my friend and and being on, on the street of super high fashion and being like buy it buy everything like i Like, I'm going to buy it all. Like, those boots, that belt, that hat, that makeup, like, yes, those fragrances, like, all of it, yes, you know, and just this beauty, and it's mine, and of course buy it, and of course wear it, and, like, this sense of, like, dress yourself in all this beauty, and, you know, uh, we're so beautiful, we're just pure light, gold light, like, it should have a gold belt buckle and it should have those manalo balonics or whatever they should have those shoes you know and they it should have you know like yes and so it had this um that particular night was so hysterically opposite of whatever what this what the spiritual journey should be like it was like yeah baby bring it bring it there's irrelevant price tags irrelevant it's just beautiful did you actually
0: buy a lot of stuff
1: I didn't actually, I don't think I bought anything that night. I think she, I think the woman I was with for that stage of the evening was like, what is going on here? You know, what is happening? But the next day, I don't think I slept that night. I think it was just this all-night trip or something. And then the next day, I was unable to actually move or access the body. And um, and that's when... A, fear started to come in because it was like, I know I have a body and I know the body needs things like food and water and it needs hygiene things and I don't, I can't access it. I don't know how to, I don't know what hunger is. I don't know what thirst, like I I, I don't know how to read all this stuff.
0: So we were you just lying in bed unable to move?
1: I, at that point I think I was sitting in bed just crying and crying and crying because I couldn't, I didn't, I was like, what is this? What's that's the beginning of a, a little bit of a kind of a trying to track. Like, what, what, what is this? What's happened? But I was pretty sure I died. It was pretty clear I'm dead.
0: But you could still see your hands move and stuff. So you, 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 didn't, you didn't mean literally dead. You, you mean the eye died.
1: No, I, I actually mean it literally. Because the eye that we have is actually only literally here. <laughs> so your life as you know it. When you die, whether it's when you drop the body or whether you enlightenment, that's your real death. That's the only death you're going to have. You're not going to die again when you drop the body. Like you have one death. That death goes from I'm a human being on a planet called Earth and I have a history and have a personality and I have people I love and this is a life. And then it gets taken away and you die. (laughs) That's it. Now, most people, almost everybody on our planet, it happens when we drop the body, that it goes, it all goes. I didn't drop the body, but it all went. It was gone. I mean, it was death. It was my death. So I knew I had died and it was a lot of bliss. And I didn't know what it was and I was trying to orient. And then what, and so what ended up happening is maybe that day, my roommate, Called it. I had Eckhart Tolle. That's what she was like. You, you, have Eckhart Tolle. Turn it into a verb. Yeah. She turned, she turned it into a verb. And I, um, she and I had watched uh, the Daily Show with Jon Stewart mm-hmm. back when Colbert, who's now his own show. Colbert. Colbert. Yeah. I I, I never watch these shows anymore. But the, but he was in that show as a reporter, and he had done a skit on Rapture Insurance, and it was and we loved it. We thought it was hysterically funny. Okay, and it was this whole skit on, you know, if you would rapture, can you buy insurance so that, like, you know, an email would pop up and let everyone know that you've raptured. <laughs> like, and your accounts could be cleared out and things, you know, like, so can you purchase rapture insurance? So that was the word I used for what had happened. I was like, I, I've i raptured. <laughs> and um, anyways, However it came apart, the next few days, like, everything just came apart. It was just, it it was really, it was a a real mess. Um, But I eventually found my way to a coffee shop. Maybe it was two days or three days later. I don't know time because it was so out of time.
0: Did you have a job you were supposed to be going to?
1: I had a great job. I had a great job. Um, It was not a kind of a nine-to-five thing. It was a kind of a, like, these are your tasks, you know, get these tasks done. So I had this kind of flexibility then in it. Um, So I did, it was close, it was close to where I lived. It was biking, easy biking walk distance to my office. Um, So I did somewhere in there show up at the office a few times and just basically stare out the window at this gorgeous tree and have this like total oneness affair with the tree outside my office. Um, (laughs) And then it would be like, that's ridiculous. And it was that one of those days that I wandered across to the coffee shop and there was my roommate and this boy that she would had a crush on christopher Christopher, and he was awake and i i just had i just walked in and rapture knows rapture you know and he and he knew my you know it was like oh you know and i was like (laughs) but i knew him i i knew him because i was out of time i knew him as my husband in many other lifetimes I, I mean, just in just in the same way, if I ask you right now, Rick, if you remember your kindergarten teacher or if you remember the house you lived in when you went to kindergarten, you have to remember it. Right. So that's how it is outside of the mind's time. It's just I I can easily access that memory, you know, and it's not did I or didn't I like it's like, did you have that kindergarten teacher? Are you sure you had that? Kindergarten? <laughs> how would you know? Prove it. You know, like. You don't have to. It's totally self-authenticating. So with Christopher, it was like that. I walked in, there's my husband. And it was like, awesome. Here's my husband. <laughs> Great. <laughs> and um, buy milk. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> um, he didn't be, he's not my husband in this life. He was a good friend who was awake. And so he was able to orient me in a way that I couldn't underestimate his support and his nourishment and his clarity. It was so clear. I mean, he's actually like Aja's twin brother or something. They, they even have the same voice. So in a way, I had my own private Aja uh, kind of carry me he through. You said he's the, a
0: well-known actor in Hollywood. Is his name really was. Christopher?
1: It's now Christopher Aslan. Yeah, I don't know what it was before. Um, yeah, he wasn't an A-list, so he's not... You had to be an actor to know him, but all the actors knew him because he played the brother or the or the. Accountant or the whatever of the main
0: person. I didn't think it was Christopher Walken or anything.
1: Okay. No, 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 not Christopher. Yeah, you wouldn't. uh You wouldn't. He's not an A-lister, so you, so the average person wouldn't know his name. In acting worlds, we all we knew, you know, like he's a a million dollar movie actor with thousands of hours on set and all the best directors and blah blah blah. But he woke up and it all fell apart, and that's just not what he was doing at all. Because that's what happens; it all fell apart. He was married; it all felt like it all crumbled, which is part of that, it's a big can of whoop-ass, do you really want it? Because nothing, nothing remains, I mean, everything falls apart. So he, so I had his support for the first little a while, and he was the first one to say to me, it's called, he, he used very beautiful words, I don't remember what it was now, but uh, I, I wrote journals in those times, which are so incredibly beautiful and will publish uh, one day because they're extraordinary but I read them often to myself because they're so beautiful. In there, I talk, you know, Christopher said this tonight or Christopher said that tonight. So he he, he never used words like awakening or awakening into your true nature, nothing like that. Um, he used much more actual, real words, like this is reality. You know, actually, you're real now. You, you know, like you, you don't live in it. You, you are dead, like ki- kind of things like that. But so he helped orient it. And he himself, was also very, he wasn't, he didn't have any spiritual indoctrination either, so he didn't have a lot of vocabulary, verbiage, or words either, so we just moved moment to moment. Because I had this thing where I was receiving all this information, you know, I was like, in a mile radius, I'm picking up, because I'm just one, I'm picking up cancers and food allergies and neuro. I'm literally hearing the whole conversations in people's heads, I'm just like, I'm, I'm like, women are crazy women are so neurotic and men are so repressed are so dead because I would walk by a field of of just insanity barking through these women and nothing like nobody's home in the men and I was like wow this is patriarchy this is the gift of patriarchy it's equally violent to both genders like nobody won nobody's won with patriarchy (laughs) like w-o-n uh W O N, not
0: right, right. I
1: knew that. Yeah, there's no, there's no prize here, and I'm receiving all this massive amounts of information, and from many timelines, and and this is actually, and it's worth talking about because this is a lot of people who have had levels of awakenings. This is what happens. They access vast fields of information, and they access different timelines. A lot of people I work with are like, I can't figure out what timeline. I can't figure out what lifetime this is. It's all colliding in this moment right now, and I don't know how to how to maneuver it, you know. And I'll work with people who it's all these lifetimes are also are moving through, or all these crazy fears and and sui- suicide is a huge one. Oh my God, people wake up and they just want to kill themselves. It's amazing the suicide movement. I have that whole chapter in the book, that little mini bit about. Talking about it's literally just a, a bug, a virus in the system. Because after people wake up, it's so common they're accessing all of this stuff.
0: Do some of them do it? After? I don't.
1: I haven't met anyone yet who has.
0: But there's a temptation, maybe.
1: The the, the the you come across it, and certainly as part of my journey, I came across it. It took me it took me almost a year to recognize it was a bug in the system because it was such a powerful movement. And I talk about it a little bit in the book of literally, this is maybe two years or two and a half years into awakening, where the whole day, I just have to breathe and not throw myself off the balcony. Because that movement is so active and so big, even though I could see so clearly, it took a lot for me to keep seeing, keep seeing, keep seeing until I noticed it's a tiny bite of programming. It's my great ability as a teacher as I get to say you know you don't have to do what I had to you don't have to spend that year trying to not throw yourself off the balcony you know it's just a bite of information look I'll show you know like go look <laughs> that's all it is ignore it So anyways I had I had Christopher for a couple of years who you know was his own explosive, Friendship, because I had so much going through, (laughs) I just became, you know, like it, it just was, it was hard, it was really, really hard for another human to be around what was exploding through here. It must have been a weekend or something, and I had, um, I I talk about at the end of the book, but I uh, was done with this nothingness, and I wanted to get back into the body, and I spent, I just did this huge, I just ran, I I danced, And ran and and did this massive athleticism for hours and hours and hours and ended up blowing out my knees and ended up on the floor with broken knees um, and spent the next few years quite immobile and quite unable to go to a doctor because inside was so disoriented I couldn't navigate outside at all it was a hellacious uh, incredible profound time of extraordinary healing and unwinding, and undoing, and um, eventually became an unbelievable liberation.
0: So I'm sure we could spend a lot of time going into all the gory details of every little thing, every little stage. And it might
1: be without the, not necessary either, you know?
0: Yeah, but then what And if you
1: are in, an, in a traumatic awakening, give me a call. Yeah. I'll help.
0: (laughs) But then you say, I was
1: so mad. I was so mad that no one did that for me. I was so mad because Christopher could only help this much. Um, And Aja, you know, he he'll say today, like, he's so sorry, but he, he didn't know how to help. You know, he was there. He was a, a beautiful help in his own way, but he couldn't really, you know, and I was so angry. And especially when I became my own teacher and I was like, it's so easy. It's so easy to help. Oh my God! But it's not if you haven't lived through it. You have to have done it. You have to have walked through it. Everybody else is, everyone else has some frickin' story that enlightenment is like the end of all suffering. You know, the end of all pain. It's the place of all good, you know, whatever, you know?
0: Well, it depends on how we want to define enlightenment, right? I mean, if you want to define it as the awakening that happened before you worked through all that stuff, then that's one thing. But if we want to define it as, you know, what, where you found yourself after all the stuff had been worked through and the, and the dust had mostly settled and, and things were pretty smooth and nice, then we could call it the end of all pain.
1: You know, and maybe, yeah, or maybe for me, I think of it as a Buddhist word, and I try not to talk or use it that often <laughs> because it's referring to a state I have no access. I don't know what that is. I have no idea what that story of it's all good. Because even here in a way my great gift, which was a hard grace, was the pain. Because there was so much pain, there had to be so much healing. So I've done more healing than most in my, most awake people on the planet. You know, mo- many awake people don't have to undo their entire de- DNA. You know, where mine did. Like it was even the DNA was broken. Like everything was broken, you know. So the amount of Embodied awakeness here is big. It's, it's it's deeply embodied, and I still wouldn't say whatever when these when I get this projected story about what enlightenment is. I don't know what that is. I have no idea what that is. Like, and I've pretty much seen it all and done it all. <laughs> and I that's just a story tale then. That's just a fairy tale to chase to chase around.
0: So you're not saying that whatever it is, you haven't reached it yet. You're saying that. The, the word is useless because who knows what it really connotes and, uh, you know, what what you're experiencing just is what it is, but you don't want to associate it with words which are undoubtedly going to be misunderstood.
1: Yeah, I don't, I don't want to associate what I... I don't want those projections. I don't want to have to defend my experiences, so I avoid those words. I don't know if what they're pointing to exists or not, and all I'm saying is that I've experienced a lot of what reality is. (laughs) I haven't come across it yet. So, but it isn't to say maybe the Loch Ness monster is real or maybe the Sasquatch, you know, like just because I haven't experienced it doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but it is widely talked about as something that is attainable. And I would disagree with that.
0: Yeah, it, it still depends on what we're referring to when we use yes, the word. Yeah, totally It may be that, you know, what the those who've established and popularized the word, the, the founders of spiritual traditions really meant, was something akin to what you're experiencing. That might be what they're talking about. So maybe the E-word is completely appropriate. <laughs>
1: the E-word, that's awesome, E-word. Yeah, the E-word. Yeah, it's highly embodied with projections. Often puts me up against a wall.
0: Yeah, on the other hand... Um, might be interesting to see where you're at 10 years from now and, yeah. and how you would look back on where you're at now in comparison to that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you said
0: just last Christmas you were still going through the ringer. So, yeah. you know, who knows yeah. how much more ringer there might be to go through.
1: Yeah, what it feels like is that it's eternal. And what it feels like is that um, it's not, sometimes the mind thinks, oh, if I have to heal forever, that's a drag, I don't want that. But every piece of it is so much more liberated. And it feels like that's an eternal pathway. And, and in fact, you know, we sometimes mentally tell a story about happiness as it can be boring and can have a limit. Um, but it's not true at all that joy is far vaster than pain and far more eternal and ever-opening. And I also feel like my job, when I take this place as a teacher, I don't know if everybody has this or or just I do, but I definitely spend my days hearing a lot of, thank God, thank God for you, you know, you're a ray of light in a dark room and and, and, oh my God, and they need to see me as love. I'm here to love, you know, And, and that's part of my job as a teacher is to love you. When I'm not around, I know I'm coming to people or people are tuning into my energy and feeling loved and feeling met. And so I can hear that all day long, and it would be very easy for me to just fall asleep a little bit and answer somebody by rote or from a me. And delusion can creep in. And it is so important that I stay as honest as I can be. And that honesty includes my own pain and my own suffering, that I'm not above it. I'm not different. I'm not separate. We're not separate.
0: So do you do do anything in particular to stay honest or is it just kind of like, you know, kind of second nature to operate in such a way as to do so?
1: I think I have to make it conscious a lot. I think I I need to make it conscious a lot, you know, because people want to project that there's no suffering and there's no pain and it would be easy for me to somehow want want to own it like I don't get involved in in the projections of of who I work with because it's essential for their journey you know it's beautiful and and it's not my business um but as a as a spiritual teacher and as a very good spiritual teacher you hear a lot how awesome you are and it would be easy to think you could just ride that in that it's not the mystery answering because a lot of the time I don't know somebody will tell me something and I'll be like wow I don't know how to do that but then I just open my mouth and this but if I'm not honest if I'm not totally honest I can dilute it or I can you know I think I just have to make it I do I make it a very conscious practice to be as honest as I can and include being honest about my pain and what happens here I'm a single woman with no children um, but I get to live around people I think of as my family and they sure as heck don't think I'm special. <laughs> and that's helpful. And that's helpful. You know, I'm just one of the family I mean, they love me to death and I'm, you know, the best thing you know, I'm beloved. But um my little nephew, uh, who I get to spend a lot of time with, he's the most awesome fourteen year old in the world, he he calls me a wizard. So he doesn't use the E-word. He calls me a wizard. And we do this thing when I pick him up from school. He plays with his friends. He's like, Kieran, tell Isaac if, you know, is he hungry? Is he is he thirsty? Use your wizardry. Read, read. read him, <laughs> you know. And that helps really keep you real. It's just a goofy thing that kids play. My, so my nephew says to me, I pick him up from school yesterday, or is it yesterday or Friday? And I start to ask him. So I say, are you... And then I know what the answer is. And he says, what? And I said, I just wanted to know if you were hungry, but I know that you're not. And he's like, you're a punk. (laughs) (laughs) Um, He tells me all the time, I'm a punk. (laughs) So I think having people around me who are very clear about their their loving relationship with me and me making it entirely conscious as best as I can, to be honest, helps me align with... That liberation, which is, I'm just here to love, like you, like all of us, right? I mean, that's, that's all we're here to do, and we need to serve, all, all of us. We need to serve. We can do that best from a place of letting the mystery guide it, not the separate self. So
0: I think there have been a lot of gurus who could have used more of that, and, and, you know, and didn't have it, and ended up sort of getting kind of grandiose.
1: We have it today. Everyone's
0: susceptible to We have it. a
1: lot of people today. I hear teachers say there's no such thing as enlightenment, and I don't think they mean the E word. I think they actually mean they're denying the experience that I live um, because they haven't lived it. Um, and they teach that. that. And I think it's a salve to people who have been on the journey for a long time, but it's just delusion. And there's teachers who teach today, you know, they end up at my doorstep all the time saying that there's no such thing as embodiment. Nothing needs to embody. Nothing needs to heal or unwind, you know, because they haven't is all. So I think the need to be honest, and for myself as well, essentially, very much for myself, to be very honest about where the point of view is that we're coming from.
0: Yeah. You know, we're all, as enlightened as we may be, we're all blind men feeling the elephant and uh, nobody's... Nobody's, nobody's got the whole elephant.
1: Nobody has it. nobody has it. Eckhart doesn't have it. Aja doesn't have it. I don't have it. you know We have a piece of the diamond we're looking at, but it's a whole diamond. And I have I have it and you you know you have it. You have a piece of that diamond right now that I can't see. Yeah. yeah, you are that diamond right now. You know that's not me as a diamond. it's you as a diamond. And it's equally—it's so breathtaking. It's beautiful.
0: Yeah. Well, I feel like you know we could easily do another two hours. Um, There's a lot. There's a lot to talk about. You've written a number of interesting blog posts. Uh, What I would like to do is wrap it up. But then, sometime in the next few months, you know, maybe January or some such thing, we could do another one. And you know, we could both review this that we've done here. And make some points that we'd like to elaborate upon, and you know I could read more of your blog posts, and people listening could also, uh, you know, read them and listen to this, and send in some points that they would like to hear greater exploration of.
1: And especially with the book, if there's questions, like yeah. if it's where, where? Where does the clarity need to come? I love it. Love it. That'd be great, Rick. That'd be
0: great. <laughs> so people can buy the book if they want and do what you just said and do what I just said. Or the
1: blog posts are all free. Totally. You can read all the teach, many teachings there.
0: Yeah, and I'll be linking to your blog from batgap.com. So it's com, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mystic Girl in the City. Yeah. And uh, so people can email me questions and points they'd like to see us discuss next time, and I'll just save them in a folder, and, and then when we do it, I'll get them organized and we'll do it. Yeah, uh, yeah.
1: that'd be wonderful. I love it. That'd
0: be great. So for now, though, uh, I'll wrap it up, I guess. Do uh, you have any final points?
1: Yeah, my final point is that I just want to thank you so much. This has been so fun, and I am so touched by this series. I love this series. It's so intimate you get to feel so intimate with the people you're interviewing and the depth of the conversation i just love it and i'm so grateful to you thank you so much and to irene and to dana and um i haven't met mr well there's
0: ralph 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 does post-production he spent hundreds of hours um
1: Hundreds of hours. Uh,
0: preparing all these videos. There's a guy in India that helps. There's a translation team and, and transcription team. There's a guy up in Canada that cleans up the audio. There's all these helpers. Uh, there's a, the, so I really appreciate all of them. And I don't often mention it, but uh, you know, the, the, the appreciation is there.
1: I do too. I'm so appreciative to them. So I'm going to stick a whack load of books in the mail for you to hand out to all these people um, as a thank you so much from okay. me. Great. And um, yeah, and just, just I have so, so much gratitude for this opportunity. Thank you so much.
0: Oh, thank you. And you know what you said about the, the kind of the bond you form or something, I, I moderated a forum out at the Science and Non-Duality Conference. I started my moderation by just saying that, you know, one of the nicest perks of doing this thing that I'm doing is that I, I just form this bond, you know, with the people I talk to, this kind of deep friendship. Yeah, um, and, I, and I've kind of named several that were sitting in the audience, and then several that were on stage to do the forum. And it's just, it's the sweetest thing, just kind of building this kind of global network of of friends.
1: <laughs> I think it's really important, and it, I, I exactly. We've sat now, we've gotten to know each other. I feel that exactly. I feel like you're my friend. Like, yeah, yeah, and I love being with you. You know, and I think it's really important because we need to. And this is a, a thing that um, I've joined the Center for Non-Dual Awareness. But as teachers, we need to hang out. And, and as each, other you know, we need to hang out together um, because we all have facets of the rainbow that can shine more brightly together. So cultivating those friendships and what this show is doing by making, you know, all of these people that are going to watch the show get to spend this whole two hours with both of us, you know? so intimately and that's such a gift so i'm so grateful you're called to do this and i love it and i'm uh it's it's just awesome and and the whole team and everybody you know everybody i've been working with as a part of this have been like irene's just been a total doll and amazing and dana was so fabulous to work with and and all of these other people it's really great so thank you thanks
0: okay good uh parting is such sweet sorrow
1: yeah, exactly. So in a couple more months, we'll connect Yeah, up. we'll do another we'll one. We'll
0: do the part two. Yeah, yeah so exactly. Let me, let me, don't disconnect. I just want to make some final concluding remarks. So uh, for those who've been listening or watching, um, obviously you, you know what you've been listening or watching. This is an ongoing series. And if you just happen to have come across this, you can go to batgap.com, and there you'll see the whole thing archived, all the different interviews that have been done. Um, there, There's an alphabetical list and a chronological list. And you'll also find number of other things, a discussion forum, and there's a little separate chapter of it for each interview that you can participate in, Um, a donate button, which I rely upon people clicking when they feel moved to do so, a uh, place to sign up to be notified by email each time a new interview is posted, and a link to an audio podcast in case you'd like to just subscribe to this in iTunes and not have to sit in front of your computer for two hours, and a few other odds and ends, so explore around, and it's a work in progress. It'll continue to grow and evolve. So thanks for listening or watching. We'll see Kieran again in two or three months, and we'll see all of you who happen to watch every week next week.